Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and today we bring you another special episode, a longer 90-minute show recorded recently at the Canadian Urban Transit Association Annual Conference in Calgary, Canada. Our guests on this special episode included Phil Verster, CEO of Metrolinx in Ontario, Aaron Pinkerton, President and CEO of BC Transit in Victoria in the province of British Columbia, and we also had Eddie Robar, who is the general manager or branch manager of the city of Edmonton's transit system in Canada. And finally, Doug Morgan, who is general manager of the city of Calgary's transit system. And boy, we had a great uh, interview program where we were up on stage in front of a couple hundred people at the CUDA conference, the Canadian Urban Transit Association conference, where I asked them about their lives, their careers, some of their big projects they're running on now. And we had some good banter back and forth on various topics. I think you'll find this a very interesting program, a look deep into the heart of uh, the Canadian public transit systems in uh, the urban parts of the country, and you'll come away with a deeper understanding of some of the innovative projects they're undertaking, and maybe can apply some of it to your transit system, wherever you may be in the world listening to our Transit Unplugged podcast. Hope you enjoy this special edition of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to uh, our Transit Unplugged CEO Live Roundtable. Thank you for being here with us. I'm Paul Comfort, your host, and uh, today's going to be an exciting day. This is a, a rare opportunity to have some of the, uh, the leaders of the biggest transit systems here in Canada up on the stage to talk to you in an unplugged format. What do I mean by that? Well, a lot of times when you see them, they're talking and, you know, answering specific questions, or if they're in the media, they're having to answer a question about the union strike, right, or the accident or whatever. And today it's an opportunity for them to tell their own story. And so I'm excited to, uh, to have them come here. Let's give them all a round of applause, first off. I think you know Phil Verster, who is CEO of Metrolinx in um, Ontario. He flew all the way here today to just be with you. Let's welcome him. Erin Pinkerton is president and CEO of BC Transit, and uh, she's come here today. She's got some exciting things happening there. She was a guest on our podcast just recently. Let's welcome her. Eddie Robar is uh, CEO or branch manager's official title, but he's the chief executive of the Edmonton Transit System. Let's welcome him. I just interviewed him yesterday for his own episode on the podcast. I can't wait for you to hear it. He's got so many plates in the air he's spinning. I don't know how he's keeping them all straight. And then, of course, your hometown hero, Doug Morgan, CEO of Calgary Transit. Thanks so much for being here with us today. My background is in transit as well. I spent 30 years in the transit business, ended up as CEO of MTA in Baltimore. And I just want to kind of be your warm-up back for these, uh, these leaders here just for a minute and talk to you about what it's like to be a CEO for five or 10 minutes. They're all going to tell you their story, but they've all gotten into this transit role in different ways. But I think we all share similar um, things that happen to them on a regular daily basis. I'm going to ask them about that. The first thing about being a CEO, I think, is that it is, you are busy. Would you agree with that? No, 
Yeah. <laughs> I remember as uh, I was CEO of two county governments as well as a transit system. And normally my days were from the moment I walked in the door to the moment I left were in meetings. Do you all have a lot of meetings? Yeah, it was strange. It's just meeting, 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 meeting. A lot of times, no time for lunch. Uh, and I know for me, at least, I had an hour and a quarter drive in to work each day and an hour and a quarter home. So on the way in, I would call all my direct reports, do the morning report, COO, John Duncan, who might be here somewhere, was my COO. I'd be calling him. I'd be calling other folks. And then on the way home, I'd return all the calls that came in during the day because I had no time to call them during the day. Does that ring a bell with any of you? It does. Yeah, busy. The second thing about being a CEO that you know, I remember today is that uh, in addition to being busy, everything you do is in the public. It's, you know, I remember, I remember specifically having this conversation uh, as CEO of Queen Anne's County Government with all of our department heads. We have public works, parks, planning, zoning, all that there. And I remember telling him, I brought a local newspaper to one of our staff meetings. I said, you know, we do the same things that everybody in the private sector does every day, right? We have meetings, we take phone calls, we send emails, you know, we think, we plan, we talk with the public, but everything they do is not on the front page of the newspaper. But for some reason, everything we do is. And then I went to the paper and showed him like eight articles, front page, government, 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 government. And that's what's happening now in public transit. Uh, is that everything these CEOs do is in the public realm, right out there. Paul Wiedefeld, a good friend of mine, who is CEO of Washington Metro in Washington, D.C., I was with him a, a couple months ago. He said, Paul, there's three reporters from the Washington Post assigned to me and assigned to our agency, and all they're doing is looking and digging and trying to find things. So everything they do is in public. That's something you need to be aware of. They basically are uh, similar to um, an elected official, just like a county executive or a mayor, everything they do, because it affects so many people and it does involve public dollars. And the third thing is that it's not smart if you make a mistake. You cannot make too many mistakes when you're CEO of a, of a large agency. So that creates a risk profile that's difficult. In other words, if I make one or two major mistakes, now at the time, you know, nobody's trying to make a mistake. You're making decisions that you think are right in the moment. But if you make a decision that turns out to have big negative impact, then the politicians and those with the gold, right? You know the golden rule, right? He who has the gold makes the rules. So uh, those who have the gold, who are funding our agency, if we're making a mistake that they don't like, it can have serious consequences. And so what it does for many CEOs in the public transit world is it makes them risk averse. I'm proud to say that all four of these CEOs are not risk averse. They're bold, but they take calculated risks. They make sure that they analyze but the, here's what you do, right? Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So you have to figure out what that reaction is going to be ahead of time and then adjust your initial thrust to make sure you don't get so much blowback that what you're doing can't be instituted effectively. So that's what they're great at. Is I used to say the job of CEO in government is to dance on the head of a thousand needles and try not to get stuck. Would you agree with that? Every day, they're making 100 decisions that they could get stuck on, but they're still here. So that shows you they're awesome leaders. So I can't wait to get into this with them and find out how they do this. Are you ready? There we go. All right, first, we're going to start with my buddy, Phil Verster. I was up visiting him a few months ago. He heads up a big operation for the government of Ontario. Phil, before we get into your operation, tell us some about yourself, uh, a little about your career and how you ended up there in, uh, at Metrolinks. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, I spent uh, a couple of years in the United Kingdom and in um, Ireland as a managing director and CEO 
of rail operating companies as well as infrastructure management companies and the like. But you know, the thing that Paul refers to about what, what, we, as, what we are trying to achieve as CEOs of transit companies is, uh, is he, he described it so well. You can, you can get into the tactical and, and dance on the, the, the thousand uh, pinpoints of needles and be tactical and try and stay out of trouble. Um, or, or, or you can do what I try to do, which means I'm going to be stuck by a pin sooner or later, is to make fundamental change in your business early. So I've been at Metrolinx two years, and, and, and it was evident for me right from the beginning, I have fantastic people in that organization, fantastic support from the communities, but we were too bureaucratic, not a business, not an, enough of a business, not operating in commercial principles enough, not enough of a safety focus, and not enough uh, diversity in our organization. And so here's the balance, is you've got to plow in fundamental, structural, organizational change, and you have to operate as a business. I'll just give you two quick examples. In, in October 2017, when I joined um, Metrolinx, 24% of our top senior managers were women. And I set ourselves a target to be gender balanced by 2021. Why? Every team in my life as an MD or CEO that I've managed that had gender balance and diversity on it were better teams. Now you ask me how better, what better, I can't explain it. They were, they were just better teams. And now, two years later, we had 38%, nearly 40%. And, and just plowing it in is crucial. Focus on safety. We started to drive the difficult things in safety. How do you create a safety culture? And we've reduced our lost time injury frequency rate by around 30 or 40% in the last two years. And so for me as a, as a CEO, you know, trying to, thinking about Paul's challenge to us, for me it is about getting Getting the tactical stuff right, and it is the busy meetings and making good decisions. By the way, go read, go read a little bit about what Jeff Bezos has said about having an organization that focuses on day one only. It's a fantastic thing, to, a fantastic approach to how decisions are made, which is just a separate discussion in total. But getting that balance right of tactical decisions every day and then making those substantive changes in your organization, I think is absolutely crucial. Thanks. Hey, we've got some people coming in the back. I, we'll take uh, 30 seconds to allow you to filter up while we talk a little bit. Come right up. We've got seats right up here. This isn't church. You can feel free to come right up and sit in the front row. You know, you won't get fire and brimstone. Come on up. I want you to be comfortable. We're going to be here for close to 90 minutes, and that's a long time to be standing. I can't wait to get into some of the details of what he's doing. I spent a whole day with his team, uh, got to see some of the big construction projects they're working on, some of the largest P3 projects in the world. We're going to talk about that shortly. Very exciting. I also had a fun time flying into Victoria Harbor on a seaplane to come see our next guest. Aaron Pinkerton is CEO of BC Transit, and they operate a system which is four times the size of Texas. In America, that seems pretty big. <laughs> I know you've got a lot of land up here today. Jeff Moore, who's here today with us, told me today that Canada is the, is the second largest country in the world landmass-wise after Russia. Very big, and it sounds like you're running half of it. So tell us some about yourself and your career and uh, how you got to this role. Thanks, Paul. Uh, hi, everyone. Good morning. 
I don't know. I'm in Calgary time, so it feels like it's 2 a.m. every day. I started almost 20 years ago now, coming up uh, to my 40th birthday next month. And I started actually in the public transportation realm of ferries, uh, which is BC Ferries across BC, which is also a provincial agency, and enjoyed a long seven to eight years there, really obsessed with what kind of Paul talked about. There's what happens behind the scenes in the organizations, which is usually a really well, people who work in public transportation care, employees care, everyone wants to do a good job. I love the culture. And then the customers, they're never happy in the public transportation world. It does not matter what we do. We could do it right a thousand times and we fail once and it's on the front page of the paper. And then there's the triple-headed dragon of politicians and the decisions and the funding. And so that's where I became obsessed in in this part of the career is how do we achieve those three needs And it changes daily. So one day our employees might not like us. The next day the customers aren't liking us. The next day we might lose a funding or a politician. And that's what we're focused on every single day is how do we then focus the efforts in the right way. Um, So then I joined BC Transit uh, about 11 years ago. um, Came up the ranks through the planning and um, light rail studies, which I failed miserably at. My joke is uh, you don't get ahead unless you fail. And uh, Paul and I talk all the time about this. I absolutely have no fear of failing. We are not trying if we aren't failing. And, And, you know, that's the risk we take. We put ourselves out there. Our head is on the noose. But you don't take this job unless you actually want to achieve something or make change. If we don't do anything, then we'd just be sitting there not changing. Uh, And and that's what we've been working on. And uh, our our model is unique in the sense that we're head offices in Victoria, but our services are across the entire province, which means that we are looking and working with 81 communities on a daily basis and trying to do it from a corporate headquarters and making sure we get out there into the community as much as we can and balancing those needs every day. That's kind of where I'm going every day on that. That's great. You know, that's a really good point, and that's why I said I'm happy to have bold leaders up here. I wrote a book last year called Full Throttle, along with nine other CEOs in the transit world, and that was the theme, is that to make it to the top, you have to sometimes go full throttle, and you have to not be afraid of mistakes. In the forward of that book, I talk about you know the average government employee, I think, is the one that has their head down just trying to make it to retirement without getting their head chopped off. Uh, you don't make it that way to be, to be a CEO. You come there because you have a passion to make a change, like Eddie Robar does. He's got so many, he's changing so many things about Edmonton that I think that you'll be very excited to hear about them. And he's going to have an entirely new transit system on his hands in a year or two. Tell us about yourself and your background, Eddie. Like Aaron, I kind of grew up through the transit industry myself. I started as a scheduler in uh, Halifax Transit, and I've been in transit for almost 18 years now. Grew up through the ranks in Edmonton Transit, eventually running, or through Halifax Transit, eventually running Halifax Transit for about six years. I always joke a bit because I traded the ferries for the buses, so I had ferries as well for a long time. A bit of the success, I think, is is a lot what Aaron is saying, isn't that, you know, not being afraid of failure. I think when I came to Edmonton, a lot of what I talked to people about was I did it really wrong before I learned how to do it right, and I think that... That happens a lot, and as long as you don't fall on that needle too hard, you can uh, kind of make your way through that. To me, it's like two things. One thing is just the passion for the job, and the second is the resilience to kind of persevere. So looking through that, not very often do you get to do the work that we do 
and be able to see things through. I always look at city jobs and public servant jobs as an opportunity for us to really see it through. And I think some people don't get to do what we do in terms of taking an idea and actually making it something tangible and real and impactful. And I think those are the things that drive that passion to make sure that we're persevering through a lot of the media attention, sometimes different ideas and different opinions. And like I said, the failure pieces, it's something that's in the back of your mind, but can never be something that drives you in your projects that you do and the work that we do every day. So, Very good. Thank you. Doug, tell us a little about yourself and how you ended up here in Calgary as CEO of the transit system. Sure. A bit of a different story for me. I'm actually a CEO by accident. Nothing I ever planned. I started out as a a roadway engineer building uh, the enemy, so to speak, uh, big ring roads, but worked in uh, the transportation department, did a lot of analysis, then got the opportunity to come to transit, and it took about three hours of walking in the door to realize, whoa, this is different. It feels different. The people here are different. And from that point on, I've never looked back. It's a, it's a great business that drives you and really gives you problems that are very difficult to solve. So I'm a big problem solver. So this was an opportunity I couldn't look back on. So I've been um, the director of Calgary Transit for about seven years. And I think what drives me and what keeps me going is it's the team I get to work with. It's uh, almost looking at our organization upside down. I'm not at the top. I'm not at the bottom to try to take away those barriers that is, there are, are out there uh, to make our staff successful. So you'll see them as your trip around Calgary. You'll see the red scarfs. Every day I come into work, um, there's just something about the alignment and the drive to that value in the community that we get. I talk to every new recruit and just talk about what they do matters. And every day they will make a difference in someone's life. And that, that really drives their performance and you see that alignment. So when we talk about big projects, big challenges, if you can keep that in mind, keep the public on your side, that goes a long way. You, you drive a lot of, uh, I guess, transit capital and forgiveness when things go wrong, if you can provide great service day in, day out. And I always have the rule of three, three bad things happen and you're in trouble and you're gonna do a lot of recovery work in order to respond to that. So the media picks up on it on the third time, uh, three cantonary teardowns, uh, three uh, impacts on pedestrians, then you got a big problem. So you're constantly dancing on that edge of operations in order to drive that value. But it really comes home when you get to talk to a customer, talk to someone, a new low-income transit pass recipient that said, I couldn't get around without you. Um, that drives me. You work the 100 hours a week in order to, to respond to that and really keep you going. That's great. I've never heard that before. That's a good rule, the rule of three, huh? When I was a county administrator, I was president of our state association of all the administrators, and I used to say, our rule was you've got to be able to count to three on every Tuesday because normally we had five commissioners and we're all at will. So every Tuesday, you've got to be able to count to three. Three commissioners that are not ready to fire you that day. So, so kind of similar to the rule of three, but a little different. So uh, this is a celebration of our uh, podcast, Transit Unplugged which is the leading podcast in North America that interviews transit CEOs. We've interviewed about 65 uh, CEOs so far around the world, and I'm happy to say that for our two-year anniversary show, our guest is going to be Phil Verster, who I interviewed a little while ago, and uh, it's a great show. It's going to air on the 15th of this month, and uh, if you haven't subscribed to it, go to iTunes or transitunplugged.com and make sure you do so. Tell us about the big projects you're working on there and a little bit about your transit system. How much time have you got? Yeah. Let's do five minutes. Yeah. 
We'll get a, we'll get a, a second round in there too. Recently, the Premier of Ontario added 28, $28.5 billion of subway projects to our portfolio. How much? Say that again. $28.5 billion. Billion. Yeah. I just want to make sure you got that with a B. So our program now over the next 10 years is a $64 billion uh, capital investment program. And that includes investment in the subways, the 28 and a half, a very big investment in our GO expansion, continuous investment in, in uh, a frequent rapid transit network for buses, but also LRTs and, 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 and other infrastructure improvements. And what's really important for me in this program is to stay close to how our suppliers and our market is thinking and feeling, how the contracts are running, how the changes in the labor market is affecting our, our contracting community. Let me ask you a question. Can I interrupt for a second? So... They're doing, everybody knows what a P3 is, right? Public-private partnership. So he's building a lot of these projects with public-private partnerships, like a lot of folks are across Canada and around the world. I know that we did one in Washington, D.C. called the Purple Line. And there was a question about the transfer of risk yeah. uh, to these vendors. How are you addressing that? Because a lot of the vendors, these are big consortiums of 10, 15, 20, 25 companies. How are you addressing that transfer of risk? With care and with caution. I think we have we are very very effective uh, P3 system and market in Ontario. However, being very effective in that market means different things to different people. I have a, a very similar approach to Doug. Um, we listen to, I listen to my customers on, uh, every day on a train and on a bus, but I listen to my suppliers uh, with the same ear. And I think the market is the market is realizing what risks the market can deal with well enough. And what risks they may have assumed in the past they can deal with, which is not that easy to deal with. And which we as owners may have assumed is easy to transfer. And in a situation where our market is not, and I'll call it out for what it is, where our market and our suppliers are not making money on their projects, then we're not in a good place. There should be fair returns for fair commercial risk and for fair, fair build. I've got 10 years of projects that I need to deliver. I can't afford to be stuck in a model um, which is not necessarily delivering for, for me as well as for the supply chain. So on, on the market, I've written to, um, to, to, to some of our teams and, and some, of our, some of our bidders on... Uh, our willingness to think about how to do this differently. And we've kept over the last nine months, I've kept very close to the CEOs of our suppliers. And, and there's, there's a point in time when a, a fixed price, huge risk transfer, single option bid, uh, single solution bid, wrapping all of the risk needs to change. And some of you may be aware, but I signaled that very clearly a couple of weeks ago on, on my Union Station Enhancement Project. I'm, we are now doing the first uh, transit alliance. Basically, it's not a fixed price contract. It's a performance-oriented contract. We invite parties in. We have a, 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 a beauty contest and a parade of who's, who's the right attitude, who's got the right culture of working alignment, and we share risk. And I think that's the shape of the future for us. Phil, an interesting tidbit about his operation. He has the most free parking spots 
of anybody in Canada. Did you know that? How many parking spots do you have? 77,000. 77,000. So he's got a commuter train service, go to, you know, go trains and go bus and a bus to the airport and he's planning everything and building everything. Yeah, so so I just heard prior to our session a very very interesting discourse in this room on on macro and micro transit and working with TNCs such as Uber and Lyft, and we're in that space, uh, figuring out how do we get access to the stations to be not by car. 17% of my people that use my free parking at my stations live within a kilometer and a half of the station. And so something's wrong here. Most of you would know when you offer something free, I mean, economists call it the tragedy of the commons. You know, if something is free, it's going to be overused and people are going to use it without thinking twice. So, so we're in that space. But look, it's a braver man than me that's going to get parking <laughs> charged for. In, 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 there you go. <laughs> so so, so <laughs> I, I, I really hope no one hears that. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. So some of the thoughts around the table here, is, uh, around this group, is about not having a fear of failure and thinking of how to innovate. All of these autonomous vehicles come out are going to need a place to charge overnight. I have a business model in my mind for these parking garages, the facilities for me to charge autonomous vehicles. We are thinking about how to convert some of them into condos. We are thinking about different parking strategies to bring in reserved parking which is voluntary payment and, and still keep free parking spaces. So, so here's the thing about the comment I made earlier. You gotta operate as a business. You gotta look for commercial value. You gotta be focused on how you market your, and develop your suite of projects and products so that you can attract people and make money. Very good. I can't, we're gonna get into that a little bit more with his uh, pilot program with Loblaws and all that shortly. So let's go over to Aaron. Aaron, tell us about your system uh, and how it's structured because it's very unique. And tell us about some of the um, some of the current characteristics of that. Great. I was going to talk about our one point seven billion dollar capital plan, <laughs> but I think I'll skip over that. <laughs> um, so BC Transit, uh, we're you know it's interesting the concept because we're twelve hundred buses. We're one of the largest, fourteenth largest bus fleet in North America, but we actually are. We don't know if we're a larger small system. We talk about that. Yesterday I went to go to one of the round tables and I was like, are we large or small? Because we have 81 systems. 75 of our systems have less than 25 buses. And then we run the Victoria system on our own through our own operations and that's 300 buses. So we, it's an interesting model because sometimes we're not sure who we are. We get the great purchasing parity and we get all the shared service value of being a provincial agency. We can basically rinse, repeat and do everything 81 times and we do that. Uh, some of my team are in the room we, we don't build just one operations and maintenance facility, you know, every 30 years. We're building them 81 times. And so you got to hope you get that right the first time because then we're going to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Um, so, you know, I, I could talk about the fact that we've got a big capital plan ahead of us. We're going to be replacing our buses. We're going to go green. We're going to get fair tech. We're going to do macro transit, micro transit. I could say all that, but I think everyone in this room is already doing that as well. Uh, one of the things that I'll, I want to kind of touch on and what's interesting in, in the region for us, and it might be happening across the rest of Canada, I assume, is the concept of the fact that transit is being seen as more than just the solution to putting uh, the A to B. 
it's the access for social inclusion, it's, it's accessibility, it's people actually not wanting to have a car at all. So it's not just for commuters. What that means for us is that our intercity demand is just going through the roof. Because people want to give up cars, we have regionalization of services, downloading of services. And so how do people make the health connections between communities? How are, how are people getting between bedroom communities as the big cities start to get more expensive? And so that's an interesting challenge because at the BC Transit level, we're not having to work with two municipalities to try to connect services. We could achieve that across the entire province. But the scope of it is, is so big sometimes, it's overwhelming. Uh, a couple of years, two years ago, we implemented Highway 16. For those that don't know, that's the Highway of Tears up in northern BC, where uh, almost 50 women and children have gone missing in the last 40 years from just a very isolated, dangerous highway. We put in transit service on that highway. It is 600 kilometers of service that services over 25 First Nation communities. The role of public transit is changing, especially in our area, so much more than just ridership. It's what are you trying to achieve? In this case, it's safety. I'll do whatever it takes to make sure that nobody goes missing on that highway again. And so the, the concept of, uh, you know, we need a cost return or we need a certain ridership level or we need cost per rides per hour, what's your cost efficiency? Those are all great. We measure them, we monitor them. But the fact is, is that that's not necessarily the business case for some of the services that we're trying to achieve now. And so I, I'll just go back to what is BC Transit, what is the role of all trans agencies, and then what, how is our role changing? In the, in the entire industry. That's really good. Uh, it's a fascinating look. You also picked up the Greyhound service after they pulled out, right? Tell us Great. just a moment about that. So with Greyhound left, we all know across uh, Canada, and we were asked to, from our province of BC, to take over the northern portion of the Greyhound services. Uh, and that is long haul service. That is Prince George to Prince Rupert, um, trips per day. And, and the model that we've done is we are actually not the operator provider. It's not even branded BC Transit. We are, and we are, we are, and I can say this proudly, we are experts and contracting out. We have 57 contracts with different people to run our services for us. And so the government said, well, can you go contract a long-haul provider for us? This is your kind of core competency. And so that's what we do. So that's another service that's been added to ours as well. And the question then is, we have long-haul, regional, intercity, and local. And, and I always phrase it as, what's the family of services? And how do we make sure they're all connecting? Fair transferability, trip planning, integration. Is it one number to call? My team who's here, they know. We have 81 phone numbers right now. We have to have one phone number. We cannot have 81 phone numbers in our system. And, and that's where the innovation comes in, right? Push, push the boundaries. I'll go on one more just because you gave me the mic and why not? We have a commuter system that comes down into Victoria and those buses park all day. Eight buses sit in this parking lot all day. Every time I go to take the Helijet to get to Vancouver, I see these buses. I lose my mind. Why are we not using those buses in our own system? There's various reasons. I get it. But why don't we push the envelope on that in terms of there are those are BC Transit buses, branded BC Transit, sitting empty all day so they can then take the commuter trip back home. So let's utilize our assets in whatever way we can. It just requires being flexible, innovative, thinking outside the box. That's great. All right, Mr. Robar, tell us a little about your system and uh, maybe one or two of the new cool things you're doing. By the way, Mr. Robar has the, uh, has the honor of having purchased the most electric buses in Canada at one purchase. Boom. So that's yeah. one of the big ones we're working on. Yeah, yeah it's a hard act to follow here, I guess. I was going to talk about, I'll talk a little bit about the electric buses, but on, on just piggybacking on, on what Aaron said around 
the integration approach and, and things that I noticed coming into Edmonton and the stuff that we're working on there. Obviously, we're working on the same thing she was talking about, you know, first K, last K, bus network redesigns. We're, we're on the cusp of that for us, but ours is more important about that integration point and really looking at how to allow Edmontonians and Edmonton region to really traverse our networks uh, seamlessly. So we've been focusing a lot on that transition of the network itself into what what people are doing now, which is that high-frequency network, the layers of service, which is extremely important to me and really getting the right service into the right places. And uh, we've switched that that whole mantra back in the day with transit was always, you can't be everything to everyone. And I think that now with the family of services that we have available to us, you can actually be almost everything to everyone and putting the right service in the right areas. I think that's a big focus of our bus network redesign that we'll be putting in a year from now. And hopefully it goes through at council next week. So I'll have my time to shine on the TV again, um, which is the worst part of the job. But also that integration point. It's funny, isn't it? Different personalities. He thinks it's the worst part of the job and being on TV. Yeah, he loves it. I think it's the best part. But (laughs) My my kids have grown old on it too. So that integration point for us is really a focus. And we did silly things like we'd have to charge people with a U-Pass that go across our municipal border to uh, another, another city. And part of the reason they weren't doing the seamless connectivity piece was just because they weren't collecting revenue. And the revenue for them, for all the regions to get in, was like $70,000. We have a budget of $350 million. Uh, when you look at that, it's, it's peanuts. And that was the one barrier for them to come into this organization. So eliminating those barriers and looking at those accesses to create what people don't care about, which is if I'm traveling across the border, I don't care if I'm going from Edmonton into St. Albert or into Strathcona. I just care that I get there seamlessly. And so that's what we're focused on in Edmonton, trying to provide that seamless connectivity through all the regions and ensuring that we're a partner in doing that with everybody around us and how do we connect all those transit systems together. Through that, we're working on regional commission work. We are working on first K, last K. We're working on a smart fare system that's going to be a fully integrated smart fare system for the whole region. So we have all the region of Edmonton, uh, nine different partners that are partnering with us to get one seamless fare card for the entire region. Uh, and that will be launched next year. Um, and then certainly the electrification stuff that we're working on, which is a bit unique in the industry. We are the long-range black sheep, I think. So we're doing long-range buses. We are purchasing 40 that will be in place and functioning in June of next year. Uh, we're received, starting to receive them in January. We've got two going through testing now, and we're putting all the infrastructure into our buildings. So we've got two buildings that are being retrofitted for a charging system, and really our focus on the electrification was um, one just to try and be holistic on the implementation, looking at the problems that we typically have as transit systems and trying to process and prove those problems away. So on the long-range side, we knew we have a garage issue in terms of how do you charge inside a garage, how many can you charge, and how do you function a facility with an electric bus, a large electric fleet inside of it. We had long-range buses, which means at the time you're plugging them in, that wasn't sufficient for us because it would take up a lot of floor space and charge space, so we went overhead. Uh, So we engineered a bus that would both trickle charge and overhead charge, which also future-proofed us for uh, if we were going to go long-range or short-range in the future. We have both ability to do both, and also it keeps all of our chargers in a controlled environment. If one goes down, we have redundancy. So we're thinking about things like that. And then into that, we were looking at range, and range was important to us as well. Uh, certainly when I talk about going from to the long range, it's about really not trying to create a fleet within a fleet. And uh, we chose the long range bus that could do about 87% of our work. 
and we're able to use that vehicle on any piece of pretty much any piece of work that we have in our system. So it doesn't impact our scheduling ability, uh, the flexibility of the schedules itself. Obviously, trying to schedule a bus to be in a specific location, a specific time for a specific length of time, we were choosing to take the customer focus and saying our importance is the customer side, and we don't want to be strapped to one specific location and building our schedules from a charger out. So. We were able to process and prove that away, and the system we have, we'll see how it works. Obviously, electrification is one of those things that are coming to the future, and then building that into what, is it, what does it mean to electrify an entire fleet. So our next phase of this is really building, and we're citing a new garage to build a um, um, our, what I call the swing garage. So we're able to put diesels and electrics in there. We'll fill it up with diesels, and then we'll replace with electric uh, buses and then we'll, we'll push them out to a new garage after that. So then we'll just repeat the process until we're done going through our fleet. So It's pretty wild what they're able to do with these batteries on these buses now. Once a quarter, I do an innovation show. We talk about something cool, innovative in our industry that's not focused on just one CEO. Uh, our first innovation show for Transit Unplugged for the new year is going to be on alternate fuel vehicles. So I've interviewed Ryan Popple, the CEO of Proterra. That's where you bought your buses, right? That's correct. And I've interviewed a bunch of his other people, too. They're making changes in batteries now in these buses. They're moving away from cadmium, which is controlled by countries overseas that maybe have too much of a control, moving to nickel batteries. And the length that they're able to travel now is so much longer than it used to be. Like he said, uh, 180 miles or whatever, like they're kilometers up here, right? So, yeah, but, uh, uh, but, but then we've also got um, Lauren Skyver on there. She's big in California from Sunline Transit. She's going to talk about hydrogen fuel and the importance of having a fleet that doesn't just have one type of fuel. There's rolling blackouts in, in California right now, right? So if your entire fleet was electric and you have the power shut out to your facility, that might be an issue. So we talk about that. And then I was able last week to be down in Dallas and talk to the CEO of Dallas Dart, Gary Thomas, about CNG, which is a big fuel that people are using across the country. So you might want to, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, you should do that so you don't miss any of these cool shows coming up. All right, Doug. Tell us about your system here, the number of buses, the number, you know, give us some scope of what you do here and any uh, one or two big projects you're working on. Sure, tough act to follow here beside me, so we'll see if we can put some context to Calgary. So 50 kilometers of double track LRT, 1,000 buses. Um, we have uh, bus sizes from 30 feet to 40 feet to 60 feet, so we really try to size uh, the buses to uh, the amount of ridership we have. Uh, we're in the midst of... The first third of our strategic plan called the route ahead, which focused on uh, building stronger networks, building the customer journey and the customer commitment, and working on financing. And I really like Phil's comment around running it like a business and, and really making sure you're focused on making decisions when it comes to projects or investments based on business principles. We inject in a little bit of, uh, of a different uh, context by making it the triple bottom line. So we measure economic environmental and social benefits and try to drive to that bottom line, but keep the decision-making process in place. As far as big projects, uh, we're just in the midst of our final rollout of a 80-kilometer uh, BRT system, which necessitated us uh, rewriting 40% of all of our service in Calgary over a two-and-a-half-year period. So a real uh, challenge for our planners and schedulers to engage the public quickly uh, get the changeover of, of the service and get it implemented, get it marketed. Uh, for the first time, I think, in a long time, some really heavy pushes on marketing, measuring closely what the return on that, try to drive ridership from actually like private sector marketing. So we were fairly successful at that. 
again, driving that customer commitment, different amenities at, at, the, at the max BRT stations, uh, partnering with our advertiser to put technology out on the stations for real-time arrivals. So doing a lot of the things to drive the cost down, we were able to move from um, an $18 million operating cost down to about a $12 million through efficiencies in the network. Phil, we have uh, cracked the pay for parking uh, if you need some advice. Uh, we have about 15,000 stalls. And we offer up uh, 50% of those uh, lots for a reserve, uh, reserve parking, and those move depending on the demand. Our goal is to keep the lots full and maybe generate a little bit of revenue as well, uh, working on microtransit, things like that. Also, the 50-kilometer uh, uh, green line, which you've probably heard lots about, trying to get that uh, $5 billion project off to the market. Um, I really like Phil's comments just about how you work with agencies deliver, to deliver projects a big one which we opened in uh, March was our Stony Trail CNG facility, uh, the largest uh, natural gas bus facility in North America oh, wow. with, about, with about 450 natural gas buses. We can fuel four of them at all simultaneously in four minutes, so a high-pressure line. Also looking at commercial aspects of that fueling station, can we use it to fuel commercial vessels to, to provide natural gas facilities for the city? Now, really look at the business case for natural gas is about a three to five year payback. So really drive our emissions down, be more economical um, and diversify our fuel. Um, so that, another big project, but really that green line is from the very north edge to the very south edge. And, and really the next level of LRT planning and thinking about the, the metaphor I use is that we have players on an LRT system and those are the riders, but we also have spectators. And that's the communities that we go through, their perception of what transit's done to their community and making sure we're being respectful, not only to, to run times, but uh, public realm and the quality of space. Uh, because a lot of those folks are gonna vote for our projects and influence our councillors and how do we keep them on board as well. So a lot going on, a lot of excitement in transit and really being a city that's fairly car focused and good automobility how do we drive almost a 50% modal split in the downtown with great transit service? That's awesome, man. They got a great system here. How many of you had a chance to ride it since you've been in town? Oh, by the way, thanks for giving us free passes. That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> great system, isn't it? Let's give this guy a round of applause for running a great system here. You know, um, how many of you read that book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? If you haven't read it, I encourage you. It's a great book. And, you know, he says, begin with the end in mind. And that, who, what is our end, right? In public transit, it's the passenger, right? We're all about mobility, improving people's lives by giving them access to all the opportunities that they might not have if they had this public opportunity. Phil has actually just written a chapter for my new book that's coming up next year on the future of public transportation. We're gonna, we've got uh, CUDA, Marco's gonna write a chapter, APTA, a lot of the big associations are sponsoring it. And the focus is what's happening in the next two to five years. And these leaders here are really pointing the way to what's happening with public mobility, even with the comments they've already made. But one of the kind of neat angles of public transportation and mobility is how to become more customer-centric, how to begin with the end in mind. Phil's got a great project going on at Metrolinx, which does just that. He's got folks that are riding, you know, 45 minutes to an hour into the city and then back home to their commuter train station. And when they get back, they may have to go grocery shopping but, uh, you know, that's an extra hour on their day. They want to get home to their kids and their family. What have you done to help them, Phil? So what we've done in this, with this particular example, we put ourselves in a different space. And, and Aaron was talking about it as well. This is not about moving people just from point A to point B. 
as transit people, we have to figure out how do we add value to people's lives? Now, that's a different, slightly different mindset. You can say moving from point A to point B is a, is a part of that, and it is. But if you start to think how you add value, um, you end up with a lot of different answers. And so one of the things we are, we are trialing is uh, um, with, with one of our big supermarket change lob laws, con- basically lock up containers um, at, at six of our stations where you can order your groceries in the morning. It gets put in the container with a code in that is sent to you. And when evening when you arrive back at your station, you pick up your groceries, you open, type the code in. Groceries are refrigerated and handed back to you, and there you go. And you've saved you saved the proportion of your of your day, and your free expendable time is better utilized with family or or whatever you feel like doing in the evening. And I think here's the thing. So when I said to you earlier of of our sixty four billion capital investment, quite a large part of that uh, on the Go network is about reducing the daily commute one direction by around 20 minutes um, from different parts of the city of Toronto, 40 minutes back um, in people's diary and people's lives every day. 40 minutes is, is, is a heck of a lot of personal time to have more of and to do things. And yeah, the interesting thing across North America for me is uh, there's a fantastic um, article a couple of years ago, two years ago, that 35 agencies in the United States, out of 35 agencies, 31 suffered a decline in ridership. And the conclusion of that study and paper, I think I read the study as well afterwards, but this conclusion of the study is, is when agencies are constrained by expenditure, you very quickly adopt a cost model in your mind. Where can you reduce costs? Where can I tweak a little bit here because I have less of a budget? And what you don't realize, what we often don't realize as transit people, is when we are pressurized on cost, we do small things we stop doing, but those small things have high value to riders. And in the end, I mean, I'm now in a stage where we are growing our ridership by just over 5.6% per year. And when you compare that to 31 out of 35 agencies seeing declining footfall, I think it's crucial that we go back and... and Quite a lot of the CEOs on this this forum have said that. Got to think about what's important to your community. Got to think about what's value to your riders. You got to focus on those things. And if you start to focus just on cost, you end up with a system that is suboptimal. One more follow-up on that. Uh, As focusing on the customers, you traditionally have had, you've been a commuter service where you're taking people in in the mornings and back uh, at the end of the day. But in thinking about what your customers want, you realize Toronto is not just a nine-to-five city. What about nights and weekends? Yeah, so um, we've rolled out, um, and, and we're not nearly as, as, as well advanced as this as we want to be, but we've rolled out a practice called Lean, Lean Thinking, which is Toyota and these car assembly um, companies use, use it extensively. This is just a continuous improvement technique. And we've just optimized our fleets and our use of fleets, our use of the our train service planning and our use of our network. And in the last two years, we've increased our seat miles to plan by 38%. So we've 20% in the first year additional capacity that we put in into the system, where previously the capacity grew by around 2% per year. Just by finding more efficiencies, and instead of taking the cost out, we increase the, the level of service we've offered. 
20% the first year and 18% in this last year. And we still have a, a, a very tough target for next year. And by freeing up assets um, and running services now on weekends and late night, you just open a whole whole, whole raft of different journey purposes. And, and, and you can structure, we, we've structured our journey purposes or our OD uh, origin destination journeys um, around these seven journey purposes and marketing a segmented marketing strategy that now targets those markets in a very uh, very specific way and it 's just fantastic it, our off peak service growth is uh, customer growth is around seventeen percent this year for the off peak market and and we 've switched from having about 80%, two years ago, 80% of our media spend went on conventional um, uh, media and conventional channels. Today, 80% is uh, in digital, digital uh, marketing. I've got more, I get more growth from, from gifts on Instagram and on Twitter than I get from any growth on any other channel. And, and when you get into that space and you really figure out what your market is and you're targeting the right your market with the right message in the right way. Some of the gifts drives me mad because I don't understand them, but, but, but still we do a lot of that and it works and I think that's how your organization must operate. Aaron and I were talking about TikTok the other night, one of the new social media things. You know, it's, and I said, and, what is it? Yeah, that is, uh, I mean, just to, just to follow up on that, how many of you all are getting your transit systems really more into just, you know, everybody's on Twitter, right? That's your service feed. Uh, a lot of people are doing it. Are you getting into more social media, more of those platforms? I know in Baltimore, we were on... I had a media guy that was great, Ryan, and he got us onto 10 social media platforms. Something that uh, we were at a dinner the other night celebrating our, our podcast anniversary, and uh, Aaron's show, by the way, has been very popular. Everywhere I go in the world in the last month, everyone's talking about Aaron's podcast. It's amazing. But you told me the other night at the dinner that you don't even want to go to bed at night. Why don't you want to go to bed at night? I don't like to go to bed because that means the day's over, and it's just another day gone. So that's how I live. I I don't want the day to end because I wasn't fully done what I wanted to get done. Never, you never get it done in the day. And we have one of the CEOs with us who, I, who shall remain nameless but it's not up here who said, what? He said, I can't wait to go to bed at night and I don't even want to wake up in the morning. And I said, what? That's pretty depressing there, man. But, uh, but anyway, um, Aaron, I've met with your team. I taught a class uh, to your senior leadership. You've got a phenomenal team. Talk a little bit about the importance at the top, we can't do it all, right? When you're at the right. top, you can't. You need to have a good team. Tell us some about what you're doing to develop your team and how you delegate effectively to them by really empowering them. You know, we agree on the boundaries, we agree on the goal, we agree on the iterative measurements. Now go, right? Yeah, I mean, if there's any snorts from the back of the room, I'll know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I think Phil mentioned it too. Hire slow and hire for fit and find diversity. And we talk about this with our own team all the time. It's so easy to just hire someone that's like, oh, yeah, I, I, you seem just like me, so I'm going to hire you. It's really, you got to push your boundaries and, and find the right balance. And absolutely, we've talked about this a lot. If you, you have to trust, you have to empower, I'm with you. If the social media team puts up a GIF that we don't understand, it doesn't make it wrong. It just means that we've hired people to do their job and let them do it. We'll never get anything done if we don't have that empowerment approach. But what comes with that is you have to have trust, you have to have the right policies, the right procedures, you have to have the understanding of when, when to bring stuff up and when not to. 
And, and then we do, we, we, and I say this honestly, we celebrate our mistakes. We try to, because every day we're going to make a mistake. And so we learn from it. We say, what, what can we do different next time? There's no, it's not a punitive approach. And, and we live by that. And our entire culture is trying to shift to that in the entire organization. And we, I would rather have someone raise their hand in accounts payable and said, I think I overpaid a bill last month because it happens or we've had a little cyber incident and let's talk it through rather than have people not want to talk about it that's the bigger risk to the organization and how do you i mean let's just go down this channel everyone's afraid to stick their head up right and admit a fault because they think they're going to get fired or punished for it how how do you encourage them to be willing to be transparent I mean, it's cliche, but it has to start from the top. I, I just told the, this entire room that I failed miserably trying to plan a late rail project. So it's okay uh, if we come in, and I say it all the time. I know that I made this suggestion, but I've actually thought about it, and I don't want to go down that path anymore. And then be very open about when you change your mind, because we're allowed to change our minds. Or if we try something and it doesn't work. You mentioned it earlier. The hardest part about this job is I want to try new things, but where there's no room for failure on a public realm. How do we try something and how do you get the support when you, and you can, I know you can pilot, you can say let's pilot it, but that word's getting a little overdone and everyone knows that you, we're currently piloting bus lanes in Victoria. Yes. Piloting bus lanes that we spent millions of dollars building. They're not a pilot. We are saving 20 minutes of travel time each direction and 20 minutes in Victoria traffic. That is Everyone has their own traffic problems. Every city believes that their traffic is the worst. When you're saving 20 minutes, the proof is in the pudding on that one. So it's just like we just have to have the right, the ability to be able to share and and talk about what the next steps are. If I could add to that. So um, two years ago, we didn't have a suite of KPIs or KPIs throughout the organization that drives performance. So we set about and we implemented that. And what was really interesting, um, and as I've said before, I, I am so privileged in Metrolinx to have fantastic people. But as we implemented the first round of it, all of KPIs came back green. So that was pretty good. Um, the fear of what, what, what would it mean if it's amber or red was palpable. And... And so what we did was we said, all right, no problem. We're going to set the target slightly different, and we're going to have our KPI review by, my, by me and my top team as an open session. Anyone can join. And for the first couple of months, there were like 40, 50, 60 senior managers would join my 10 of us that do the review. And we established the behavior that green is not the, the target. Red is the target. Because if you know... If you know where the gap is, you know what you can do about it. And so to have red is pretty cool because then you're a more interesting person to talk to because you've got a lot of stuff that you're thinking about. (laughs) All of the people that have green, you've got an easy job. You with red, you've got exciting jobs. And and look, this is it. This is, and Aaron is is 100% right. It, It is all about what you signal from the top of your organization and what culture are you trying to create? Well, I have a good, you know, it's interesting on that because I think when we talk about the public-facing side as well, we always have to just go back and really truly believe that what we're doing is the right thing. So I got the official job about a year ago, and it was I, they played intern with me for eight months. That's always fun, eight-month interview process. But one of the things that we immediately changed was I said our organization needs to be 100% transparent 
to our customers. And so we, I said, we have to tell our customers everything that's going on. They deserve that because that's right for the customer. And um, my team who's in the room right now knows. We now post every single trip cancellation, trip detour. We didn't used to in the past. You just, you know, it doesn't matter. Bus isn't going to show up. Who's going to notice? Well, we're getting actually a lot of media attention right now because we became transparent to the customers. And so one, you know, there's this, and you said the one, two, three, we're on four on this one. Good luck. And so we had five trips canceled this morning, five, five out of 3,000 in a day. And it's on the front page of the paper today. Really? Wow. But I don't care. I don't care because what's right is that we're doing it for the customer and the customers deserve to know what's happening with their service. And so the fourth time, maybe this will be my sharp pointy edge over five canceled trips, but it's the right thing to do. So that's the what you have to really truly believe what you're trying to do. Yeah. Eddie? The transparency piece is a big piece of the accountability of the transit network. I think we're doing a very similar thing in, in, uh, in Edmonton and uh, did a very similar thing when I was in Halifax, but we produced an annual service plan that really goes through all of the metrics. What targets are we achieving? Which ones are we failing at? You know, making that priority list of the uh, improvements that we have to make, but it only it helps me be accountable to the public side of it, but it also helps the public know why we're choosing what we choose why we're putting the money or investing in where we invest it. Uh, it helps me at council when they can look and say, mine's number 32 on the list and his is number two. Uh, that's why you're doing number two. And if they want number 32 to number one, well, you got to convince uh, 12 other people. So I think um, that accountability framework and being very transparent about the work that we do, we're always going to have challenges in the transit system. They're never going to go away. How you attack them and how you, how you approach that to the public is a, a big piece of that transparency actually helps you prioritize your work, uh, deal with the customers, and deal with the public and the counselors. So I think it, it just, as much as it, it might give us some media attention from time to time, uh, that media attention, I always say there's no bad media in transit. Uh, as much as you're in front of it, every media is an opportunity to either improve your system, uh, get more money, funding uh, sometimes. And, uh, Great. and make you those have an points. interview at eleven, then. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought being on TV was your least favorite thing. It is, but it also it's a, I didn't say it wasn't helpful. Okay. But it's my number one thing is to watch Eddie on TV. Is that right? <laughs> well, he's going to go on. You for me now. tape it into uh, the best of, huh? I, I never watch myself on TV, by the way. <laughs> That's a way of chatting. I taped them all. Don't worry. <laughs> Hey, I wanted to ask you, Eddie, before we go back down there, uh, when I interviewed him yesterday, he talked about culture change in his organization. And a big part of what CEOs do is not just lead service change, but most of the, all four here I know, are working on change within the culture. We, we lead big organizations of thousands of people, hundreds of millions of dollars of budget. And so many times, like Aaron said, there, are, there is a, um, sometimes, where you don't want to see things from a different perspective. But I think all these leaders have figured out that like this sheet of paper. If I hold this sheet of paper up to you, you say, what do you see? You're going to say, I see a blank sheet of paper, although you might see some words through it. And I'm going to argue with you and say, no, no, there's words all over that paper. It's the same piece of paper. We're just looking at it from a different perspective. And in order to get the full picture, don't you have to look at the full perspective and get some other ideas in there? Yeah, for sure. I think it starts, um, a lot of it starts from the top too. And I always say, um, I can't ask people to change unless we're willing to change ourselves. Uh, certainly the diversity on the team is, is a big one for me. Uh, I think 50% of my management team is women. Having that different diversity and different perspectives helps me kind of, and people that tell me I suck from every day, you know, <laughs> that's a terrible idea. And, uh, and they're willing to do that is helpful. But really getting out and knowing who your, who your, your staff are and being engaged. We have all big workplaces and I know all of us 
spend a lot of time in them. Uh, we do meetings all day. I mean, we start early in the morning, we go late at night, but uh, carving that time out to be really on the shop floor, letting people see who you are. Uh, I always say to, to some of my folks is you kind of gauge that, that activity and that culture change by if, if a bus driver waved to you on the way through, right? So I'm getting more waves now than I used to. Four years in, that's helping. I, we spend, I spend a lot of time and I purposely engage our, our operator group, our motorman. I'm in the shops uh, every quarter, uh, morning, night. I do it at different times of the day. Sometimes they're at four in the morning, sometimes they're at midnight, middle of the day. So we kind of mix it up a bit each time, but certainly getting out and engaged and telling them what's going on too. I'm very purposeful about yes. all of the um, activity that we have. So communication, internal communication uh, was probably the most important thing to me uh, as I started kind of changing the culture of, of ETS and really working at uh, letting them know, not only being transparent to the public side, it's just as important to be as transparent to your operator group and let them know that they're the ones on the street. We try to get all the information to them prior to our public uh, engagement events, uh, really be timely and making sure that they know what's going on when they're on the street and people are approaching them about what they heard in the media, the news. Uh, that little piece and tidbit of communication has gone a long ways in, in really improving that part for us. That's great. Doug, walk us through an average day for you as a CEO. Tell us like what your day is like. I think people will be interested in that. Oh my goodness, really? I can predict that I've had no two days the same. Uh, but I start work fairly early, so it would be uh, probably get up about 4.30, probably get to the office about 6 a.m. before everybody's there. Gives me a chance to get prepped for about 30 or 40 meetings during the day. So Did you hear that? And that's not a joke. It could be management team meetings, could be one-on-ones, could be counselor meetings, uh, could be dropping in the shop for a safety tour. Um, so my favorite part of the day is really getting out, uh, getting out to projects, getting out on the system, uh, running through the, the shop, talking to the mechanics. So really the variability of what you do, it could be the one-on-ones, it could be large groups, it could be presenting. Um, so no two days are alike and a lot of different elements within those days. It might be uh, meeting on budgets, it might be service-based, it might be leadership-based. So just a wide variety, but generally uh, a long day. And even on the weekends, you're monitoring service, you're getting service uh, results coming back. So checking on the team, making sure everything's uh, working properly. So for most of you who don't know, he also goes undercover and uh, wears a wig. He was, on, he was on Undercover Boss. And that, that was my test. That I, re- I really found out that, thank goodness, I'm the director and not the guy changing tires or mopping floors because I wasn't very good. But what that did is it really gave me an opportunity for the, all the employees of Calgary Transit to know who I was, get a little of my backstory, and be able to intercept me in the parking lot or, or in the downtown, uh, give me a little ribbing and, and a little, uh, have a little fun, but it made me much more accessible. And it's super important to me that um, as I walk through the system that people will grab me and, and start up a discussion. I'll be downtown on a Saturday with my kids and an operator will pop up and, and start a conversation. Um, and, and that's what gets me up every day is those kind of little interactions. And we talked a bit about culture. And I'm not a, a super fan of going out and trying to change culture. I'm much more of uh, here's the philosophy we go by. The culture will come as a result. It's not something I'm actively trying to do. So just key on those relationships, the respect, and making sure that everybody understands that talent is everywhere in the organization. And, and our job is to try to pull that out and, and make them the best they can be wherever they are. Because I, I found gems uh, of team members of employees doing great work 
like way down in the organization. I just rode on the train this morning over here and we had uh, Sid Banks, our operator that tells the weather and tells a few jokes. And I get so many tweets and feedback from customers. Those little things that make such a big difference that really get people on our side. So when we ask for big capital budgets or we ask for forgiveness when we have an outage, uh, they come to our defense and, and really make the system better. That's good. So you're building relationships with your folks. As best you can with 3,200 of them. Um, I'm not great with names, so there's a lot of sports and pals and buddies. Uh, But certainly (laughs) you you recognize uh, their faces and and their excitement to talk to you about what they do. And and even a bus driver, a couple of the folks we see uh, at the stations, they're happy to be there. They understand what value they have in the community, and and they love it. They talk about it. Um, A little story about an operator that came to see me. He was retiring, and he came with this great big folder. He'd been with us for 30 years. He had every commendation, every letter, all the way back, and he was so proud about his time here. So you just you see that pride, and you think, that's what's going to make us successful. We could do a lot as managers, but if we can culture that to, to just be have a connection with what you do, up and down, it takes you a million miles to where you want to go. That's great. Phil, how much of your job would you say is political, where you're like, you know, like, a, like a, an executive dealing with politicians and funding agencies and that kind of stuff? Too much. <laughs> yeah. That's what I wanted I say you to that, hear about. Yeah. I say that tongue in cheek though, um, because uh, when you when you have a portfolio the size the size of what we've got, and when you when you make an Im- when what you do has the impact on communities to the extent it we have, it's humbling, and and that's the word we use as a senior management team for our internal conversations, and we. Remain in that space that that what we do is humbling, and, and any moment, um, any, any moment, we we need to figure out what it does for our communities rather than what it does for ourselves. So, so, so because of that, it's crucial that you work at different levels of government to get decision making to be aligned, and to get people to be informed and to understand what you do. And and when I joined, there was a sort of a tense, just been a tense episode between sort of in, in public about government instructing Metrolinks to change its view on something and, and Metrolinks did. And and one of the things I've been adamant about and which we do bravely and consistently is we say to all politicians, look, with us you're always going to know where we stand because we're just going to give you the facts. Transit is so easily politicized and it's so easily it becomes an um, a, an emotive part of how societies operate and think we've recently um, adjusted some of our bus services which had a 12 12% occupancy rate and 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 I took those buses and started the conversation took those buses out of service and and we talked to all levels of 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 government but still it was not it was not positively positively received. The point, though, being you have to establish yourself as an authentic leader that work with facts and that you are putting the facts to government and that the facts of the decision will prevail. If you are seen as operating in the political sphere, I think you've lost your credibility in transit. So you've got to be in the space of I run a business, I do it for the right reasons, I give you as the politicians opportunities to make decisions on how to re, reapply funds for social purposes or for social objectives for me or the triple bottom line as Doug says, 
But you have to be in a space where you really drive hard on facts, open, transparent, and deliver stuff. That's good. Aaron, I'm going to talk to you about your favorite subject, uh, and that is women in transit. <laughs> uh, I really respect Aaron. She's uh, earned her way to the top and worked her way to the top. But really, at least in America this year, this is the year of women in transit. I mean, almost every CEO position in the last six months that have been announced in the United States, from Indianapolis to Richmond, other, have all gone to women. And you've heard the commitment on the part of all these leaders to making sure we have gender diversity and other type of diversity in leadership positions. Talk to us about anything you want to on that topic. Open floor. <laughs> uh, Paul knows I do not like the word women in transit because I did not get this job because I'm a woman. I got this job because I do my job well. Right. So it should be... There we go. It, it should be people in transit, and that's all there is to it. And I don't care who the person is. Let's just get the right people in the right seats. I think, and I talk openly with a lot of women, um, young women too, who are trying to enter the transit world, any world, any profession. The one thing that I and I, I, think, I hope that we can get there, is I still am having to uh, justify my title and my position in many, many conversations I have. So that, that is the unfortunate reality. It still does happen. Whether it's meeting with a mayor, we do have 100, if you want to talk about politics, we have 130 mayors. <laughs> so whether it's meeting with a mayor or an elected official or even a supplier or a vendor, I still sometimes have to do a, you know, it takes 10 minutes for that click to happen about, oh, this person might actually know what they're talking about. And that is unfortunate. And it shouldn't be, I shouldn't, so that's my, that's my personal rant on that is that, uh, and I think we're going to get there and I'm going to stop justifying it too, because then I'm just condoning the behavior. Uh, but that, that is where we should be. So people in transit, the whole age of women, it, we're already there, right? Boom. We should be there. Let's just get there. Yeah. I, I support Erin's principles, but I, I would like to come at it from a slightly different angle. Go and look in your organizations how your job descriptions are written. They're written by men for men. They are written, in order to fill this post, you need 45 years of experience on the track, which is, con which is building which is building expertise of men into job descriptions. While my wife spent, um, spent a lot of time looking out, being a homemaker, looking after our children. And I say this, hoping she's watching this program. My wife has got many more skills than I've got. And, and, and people like, like my wife and, and, and women with experiences that we don't recognize in a typical traditional job description are not making the shortlist for the jobs where we want them. And when we talk about women in this context, we should be thinking wider and, and think about the diversity of, 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 of people we have in our society. We had, we had interview panels that were all men. And so now we've got 50% interview panels will be women, 50% men. Our candidate lists will have at least 50% women. Our job descriptions are rewritten. And all of a sudden, we are recruiting fantastic women from places where we have never looked before. So I agree. I mean, this is this thing of do you call it out and do you call out women in transit or not? Um, from my accent, you can, you can hear I grew up in apartheid South Africa. And I'm 100% supportive of affirmative action and calling out the wrong and fixing it deliberately. Because if you don't, it just persists. 
Absolutely. You know, the other thing that I always talk about as well is we are still, most agencies still have a traditional approach to the underlining culture of how the organizations run that might, and it's not just women, just talk about anybody. So for example, we, I, I don't know if this is known even to every, my staff that are here, but I don't like meetings before nine and I don't like meetings after 3 p.m. Because what that limits is people, people who might want to drop their kids off at school or pick them up after school. You then have this severe guilt of, I just missed the morning meeting or I have to leave for the afternoon. And so then what I worry about is how do we keep people in, the, in, our, in our companies for a long time? I want them to feel supported. When I first joined BC Transit, I went over to, we have a gym, that's great. It's run by all employees and it's self-employee like employee run. I went over and I was like, oh, like what is this like there so now we have yoga because you know what we needed yoga and we have actually more men attending the yoga classes than women but how do we make sure that it's not just checking the marks and actually living and breathing the culture that facilitates the fact that there are differences between genders race and age and how people want to work in our companies are we looking at those daily and saying we've just overlaid a very uh historical structure to our workforce and then are people staying or leaving as a result yeah and i think to echo uh, phil's comments that we see there's all these in, invisible barriers to a recruitment that we don't see that getting some diversity out and to pull, put lenses on things like for us it was even the pictures of who's in the job posting right. it was all men so just how we term things realizing that that people with diversity come at the jobs in different ways so even your interview techniques have to change so that's where I think the role of, of women in transit is, is just to help us with barriers because we, we don't see it. And, and how do you get enough of that perspective in to draw down those barriers? And I, and I love the no meetings after three o'clock. Like, never thought of that. And, and I think by talking more and talking about that diversity, that'll make us stronger. And it's really all about talent management. It's not about 50-50. It's I want the best people. And I see no reason why it can't be 50-50 as an outcome. To add one more thing about this because I'm pr pretty energized about this. Um, in, in, in my 15 or 20 years as a CEO, I've seen the following, and it's not, not an absolute science, but there's just the following general tendency. If there's a role um, that is challenging, that someone hasn't really considered that they could or should do it, if your prevailing environment is a male-dominated environment, the men would be, yep, I'll have a go. And the women would be, I think about this really carefully. Can I make a real success of that in this environment I'm in? And so you have a natural tendency that people are stepping forward and it's a reinforcing gender behavior in that environment that you're in. And so people like you, who are seniors in, in the industry, you have to coach, and, and especially women, coach women um, to be more comfortable in the environment if you, haven't, if you have a an environment that is skewed towards men. You have to give women a sense that they can, they can try and they can, ex they can experiment with their career and they can take a chance and that you'll be there to support them. And you need to put extra measures in place, not, not just because it's a woman, a, a woman, but because if it, if, if, even if it was a man, you, you, you want to make sure people succeed when you give them opportunities. But you need to be especially tuned in to people in your, group, in your organization that are minorities, that don't naturally feel they're in a sort of safe environment to leap forward, while others that are minorities feel... Maybe I shouldn't leap in an environment where I'm a minority. So I, I do think this, this requires leaders to be 
leaders to take care now you think about your people because in the end, uh, I'll give you an example. This year, our customer satisfaction ratio on go and on up went respectively from, from 80 to 83% and from 84 to 89%. People that say they are very satisfied or satisfied with our go and, and, and our up services, and this is wide, wide samples. That correlates directly for the level of engagement of our people, which went up one percentage point. When your labor force and your people are engaged, Doug and everyone's talked about this, greet people, walk the floor, talk to them. But when people are engaged, you perform better. And when you have a higher CSAT, you have higher ridership, you've got a better bottom line. So this is the, you've got to think about your people very, very carefully every day. Excellent. We're just about done. I'm going to ask Eddie one more question, and that is a future facing question. Eddie, tell us what you see coming for the public transportation or now mobility industry in the next two to five years. What do you see coming for us? Well, I think um, certainly for the, the city of Edmonton, the, the focus for us is really about how do we provide that system and uh, that, that people are looking for. So when I came into Edmonton, what drew me there was really that opportunity to deliver a transit system from scratch. Um, whiteboard the whole thing and start over again, but really from that customer perspective. So I think the changing environment in the next two to five years is really that focus on, on the customer, providing what people are looking for and showing the, uh, the outcome of that. And then looking at that, like, again, that layered service approach and how we can get fully connected networks and really get the right services into the right areas, no matter how small they are. And mobility is important to all. So looking at that variety and making sure that everyone is taken care of, and you spoke about it a bit, but those vulnerable sectors as well. I know um, uh, Doug and I have kind of worked in that ride transit program that the mayor talked about, uh, which has been a, a huge popular program for us and probably is something I'm most excited about implementing in Edmonton, and I'm sure Doug the same for Calgary, but it impacts, you know, between the two of us, about 80,000 uh, Albertans. So you're looking at that impact and that mobility and getting people connected. I think that the future is, is bright in that regard and certainly the element of how do we become good at what we're really good at and let other people be good at what they do and how do we partner and connect to make that good for all of us, I think is, is really important. And then uh, looking to the future beyond that, obviously the, 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 um, the automation front and how do we prepare for that and how do we get regionally connected and that when that happens, we're ready and we're able to adapt, I think is, um, is part of that, that element as well. And it's going to come faster than people think. I think uh, we talked about automation and, and well, even the battery technology and, and what that changed. When I went out for electrification, we were talking about short-range buses. We could only go 200 kilometers. It's going to be impactful on our stuff. And then, you know, a year later, we're doing 400K, then 500K, then they're talking about 1,000K. So, I mean, these, um, this transition happens quickly, and I think you have to be prepared for that. And certainly, when we build our networks, we're building that in a way that is, uh, is able to adapt. So... I think those are the big things that we're looking at. Hadn't this been a great panel? Let's give them a round of applause. <laughs> if I had to sum up what we said today, I think it is that uh, transit is becoming more than just taking people from A to B. That transit is now responsible for a large part of the life of a smart city going forward. It is the, uh, the veins that connect the city where the blood, the blood travels through the, organi uh, the organism. 
One way we can share best practices is, is through social media. And um, I know that uh, most of these folks have social media presences, not only for their transit systems, but also individually. I'd encourage you to follow them on LinkedIn. Uh, they're putting out some great things. I put out stuff on LinkedIn every single day about public transportation and best practices around the world. I encourage you to follow all of us on LinkedIn. And I encourage you to promote public transportation and mobility, no matter what your role is in your agency. Um, promote it as a positive, uh, uplifting force for your city. We have to compete. Um, back to the golden rule to wrap it up. We have to compete with all the other great, you know, great things that government is doing, <laughs> whether it's roads or whether it's parks or whether it's ever. Uh, public transportation has to compete in that realm, and that's why the role of these CEOs is largely political, like Phil said, because they have to make a best-case argument for the subsidies that we need to continue to operate our operations. So continue to be positive in your messaging about public transit and mobility to people that you seek. And in that realm, I'd like to ask all the guys to stand up and uh, feel free to take a second as we stand here and stretch to take a picture of these folks and uh, tweet it out on your tweet and say what a great job they did today. Thanks for being with us today and being part of this CUTA roundtable. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.